0: And the church, the gathered people of God, has indeed authority in the Christ-given areas of authority. We need to remember that the power and authority in the church do not rest in the congregation like in the American democracy, but it rests on the Word of God. There is no endowment by the Lord Jesus with the unalienable right to pursue your own happiness. That's not the church. We are slaves of Christ pursuing the will and glory of the Lord Jesus, and we seek one another's happiness over our own happiness. So when church business meeting becomes a debate about painting the church's restroom, when people are arguing about the type of refrigerator that the church purchases, complains about one's personal preference, then this type of congregationalism has completely departed from the biblical standard. Every Christian is going to be congregationalist somehow, by their feet. The feet will either stay or leave. you are going to make a vote somehow. It's important to help believers realize that they have all been called into full-time Christian ministry. Giftings may be different, roles may vary, but being a Christian means being a what? A minister. I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Galatians, to the letter to the Galatians chapter one, as we are covering church government. We probably have two more sermons on this series, two or three more sermons, and I just want to tell you those are very, very important. All the sermons have been very precious. But when you're dealing with the church government, how a church is supposed to exercise the authority of Christ given to their local church, as we are going to be looking at it, it's crucial. Uh, sometimes it's tempting to try to rush since we're coming towards the end of the series. It has been a long series, and, and sometimes the temptation is just, oh, let's just get over it, let's get done. I just can't. Uh, I just want to take the time to help you and help this church to be grounded in what the Bible teaches about church government. By God's providence, some of you might leave this church, will leave this church, and you're going to be looking for other churches. And it's important to know what you believe about the structured church polity, how a a church is supposed to be structured. I think about so many of you who have been in churches for so long and are still so spiritually immature. And one of the reasons is because of the type of church government where you are never required to be involved with deep things in the life of the church. It became more just a a club where you just show up and, and you let other people make major decisions in the life of the local church. And I strongly believe that this topic of church government is very, very important. Jesus is king. And as a king, he has rules and orders for his church. Amen. So I want to invite you to stand if you can and let's read Galatians 1. Let's read verses 6 through 9. Paul is writing this letter. It says in verse 2 to the churches of Galatia, and he says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you let him be anathema, accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. You may be seated. Lord, once again, we we ask you to help us. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be pleasing in your sight. Amen the local Baptist news reported that a big split, a big division took took place in one of the most well-known Baptist churches in town. And the issue among the members of that church was the color of the carpet. The church was divided. Some people wanted a light color for the carpet. Others wanted a, a dark color for the carpet. And the business meeting became chaotic. Voices were raised, anger, frustration all over the meeting. The Baptist News article reported the families that once were so close to each other ended up being torn apart because of the color of the carpet. We know that it was not the color of the carpet. Amen? The problem is the heart. James 4 says that the quarrels and divisions and fights come because of the sinfulness of our hearts. The carpet simply revealed the maturity of that church, or lack of maturity. That's what the carpet did. It was a revelation of the carnality of that congregation. But sadly, that's how so many people see congregationalism. When you talk about what it means, say, we believe in a congregational type of government in the church, they think that congregationalism is some sort of anarchy or a secular democracy where all the members have a duty and right to voice their opinion on every single matter and subject in the church life. That's how so many people see congregationalism, as if every single member has the duty and the right to speak about every single matter in the church. Confusion abounds when it comes to what biblical congregationalism is. In 2011, James MacDonald, he was the former pastor of Harvest Bible Chapel. I think he had a a, a Bible study, a radio program, I think it was walk in the Word, something like that. And he wrote an article, a blog post, and the title was, Congregational Government is from Satan. And in this article, he argues that the congregational type of government is an invention and a tool of the enemy of our souls to destroy the church of Jesus. And I think it's interesting that he goes very deep in saying that not only the congregational type of government can be a tool of Satan, but he actually says there was an invention of Satan. I think that's where things can be very, very harsh. He argues that congregationalism itself finds its origin in hell with Satan. But an important, very important about this is that. In 2019, if you guys know about James McDonald and the whole issue that he had in his church, in 2019, he was fired by the elders of the church. So, one article says, that's from the Baptist Press, the elders of Harvest Bible Chapel announced on Wednesday, January 16th, that Pastor James MacDonald would take an indefinite sabbatical from preaching and leadership at the Chicago megachurch while it works to reconcile with past critics. The decision came after the church's executive committee of elders held a closed-door meeting on Monday and presented its recommendations to the entire elder board Tuesday night. The announcement follows recent reports of criticism of the church's financial and management practices. So, not going to why, why not, but if they were right or not. The, the, the thing that's interesting is that you see this man, he's saying that congregationalism is a tool of Satan, is an invasion of Satan. And then he's b- fired by the board of elders or elder committee. Closed doors, they decide this to remove him. And consequently, James MacDonald, he sues, Those elders. He says that he loves the church and he's suing the elders. And I was thinking the of course suing is gonna end up with the church, suing the whole church, their elders of the church, but maybe, maybe, if the whole church had been able to voice their own judgment on the matter. I think more clarity would have prevailed. And maybe you would have heard from the whole congregation or the majority of the members saying, yes, we don't trust you. Our vote is, yes, you need to be removed. Or the majority of the church would say, no, we disagree, we know you, and we think you need to continue being our pastor. So th- th- this example here shows how important church government is in the life of the church. Uh, and of course, once he got fired, there's so many issues, so many people hurt, so many families devastated. But you see, you start seeing through these examples how church government, how the church governs itself, it's very important. I like what Sam and Marty, he says, Sam and Maddie, he, he writes saying, We hurt each other. Not ultimately because of some disorder in church structure or church government, but because we are still sinners with a healthy dose of of selfishness bound up in our hearts. So no, a biblically ordered church cannot stop every divisive word, unchecked bitterness, bitterness, or act of disunity. But he says, But a biblically ordered church does have the means to deal with these sins in a healthy, redemptive redemptive way. And in a way that keeps disunity from spreading like gangrene, like cancer. He says, good church order is like a helmet that you can throw on top of a disunity grenade. The grenade still explodes, but the helmet helps contain the shrapnel. So my prayer is that this God-given helmet of a, a biblically church governance would indeed be a, a spirit-given measurement to protect our church, to help us. So here's the outline of this morning's sermon. We are going to be looking at what it means to be a pastor or elder-led congregation church. And then we're going to move to what congregationalism means. That's what we believe as a church. We believe that the most biblical type of government is elder pastor-led congregationalism. you are going to see what that is. But before we go, it's important to keep the background of last sermons in our mind. So last Lord's Day, we saw two very, very important truths of the Scriptures. First is that we had the, the question, who is in charge of the church? And we saw that Jesus Christ Jesus Christ alone is the ultimate and the main leader, head, pastor, elder, overseer of every local church. The church belongs to Jesus Christ. And every local church will give an account, not to a denomination, not to a bishop, not to a group of elders, but will give an account to Jesus Christ. Amen? That's the first thing we need to keep in mind. The church belongs to Christ. And then we also saw that each local church under Christ's headship is autonomous, is self-governed. Like we read this morning from the 1689, the Lord Jesus gives to each local church all that they need to function as a local congregation. And those are important things as we keep in mind as we are studying what we understand, what we believe about church government. So, with these things in mind, let's go to... Where we need to be and understand what it means to be a pastor, elder-led congregation. A pastor and elder, I'm using here synonymously, is the same thing. Remember the the question, who is in charge of the church? Who is in charge of the church? Jesus Christ. Remember I said that there is a simple, straightforward, very basic answer and that's Jesus Christ. Under this answer, there is a more complex answer. Under the headship and leadership of Christ, the church has other structures or spheres of authority. So, for example, in the Bible, we see sometimes the whole church being commended to do something. All the members are called to act with authority in certain occasions. Other times, we see the pastors or the elders being called to act authoritatively in some areas of the church. So, putting all these descriptions together of the New Testament, we can see that the local church has aspects of a monarchy. There is this aspect that the church is a monarchy. Why? Christ Jesus is the king. He reigns over the church. There is an aspect of a senate or oligarchy. Because you have pastors, elders with authority to lead the church. And there is also an element of democracy in the sense that the people have authority. That's very important to keep in mind. So, we must acknowledge these spheres of authority... And be very careful to keep and balance all of them together the ultimate authority of christ the final earthly rule of the congregation and the everyday leadership of the elders or pastors so our goal as we're studying church government our goal as christians is to be faithful to all that the new testament teaches on church government and find the balance between congregational authority the elder leadership, all under the lordship of Christ. Amen? You see how it's not that simple. We always want something simple, easy. Give me the easy thing. It's not that easy and simple. We need to work through what the new covenant has as God's gift of governance. Governance. So these different areas of authority are to complement one another. So you don't, you don't put the congregation against the elders, the elders against the congregation, the congregation against Christ, never. They're supposed to complement one another. And when the kingship and the headship of Christ together with biblically qualified pastors and the whole congregation were together, the glory of, of Christ is beautifully displayed in the life of the local church. So in this church, we hold to a pastor or elder-led congregationalism. We believe that pastors or elders are called and given to the local church to help each local church in the major decisions related to the gospel. So we can say that a pastor or elder-led congregationalism is the scriptural conviction that the gathered congregation, and that referring to believers, as a whole, led by biblically qualified pastors, has final authority to render judgment about what constitutes a true gospel confession and who is a true gospel confessor. The what and the who. So let me ask you, if a church does not have elders or pastors, is that still a church? Of course. You see, you can have a church and for a season not have pastors or elders, but you still have a church. But you can have leadership. And imagine, you, you have a so-called church that's just leaders. That's not a church. You need a body. So, for example, we are going to see in Titus that Paul tells Titus to go and appoint leaders in the churches because some churches were lacking leaders. They're healthy, godly, biblical churches that sometimes, under God's painful providence, they go through a season where they don't have pastors or elders to lead the church there's still a church. Amen? I remember this Reformed Baptist Church in Brazil. They were without a pastor for a long time, without elders for a while, and they would be always calling different pastors. So I would go maybe once a month there to preach and and minister the Lord's Supper or the ordinances. But they were... A pastor, elder led congregationalism. But in God's providence, they did not have any. And in God's timing, he brought up. And I just want us to keep in mind that, uh, so, you know, we, we just need to be careful with judging some churches. We need to ask does this church reject the office of pastors, or is this church just lacking pastor for a season under God's providence? Because there is a difference. If a church just rejects and says, we don't need leaders. We don't need elders or pastors. Then they are going contrary to the Scriptures. It's different from a church that longs and in God's timing they don't have yet. Ah. So just to keep in mind these things. I would say just to, to... Bring back here, we, we contend that the church is comprised of all God's people covenanting together, covenanting together, and making decisions under the supreme authority of the head of the church, our Lord Jesus Christ, and under the leadership of Christ's appointed leaders within individual churches. Yet, the entire congregation has a role to play in these decisions and in governing the affairs of the church because they are a regenerate people. I like what Jonathan Lehman says. He says, since the he says, since the gospel's work has already begun in us, we are congregationalists. Since we believe that all Christians are empowered and dwell with the Holy Spirit, we believe that all Christians, as they assemble together, they have the authority of Christ to make vital decisions in the life of the church. But then he says, since the gospel's work is not yet complete in us, we are elder-led congregationalists. We need leaders to help leading the church. Similarly, Stephen and Kirk Wellham, they say, the church is a spirit-filled and a spirit-led body, and it requires leaders who are the same. Leaders are necessary because the church is still growing in conformity to Christ, and there are many threats to that growth. And with that in mind, please open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. And here we see the beautiful harmony of pastors leading the church and the church working out their role and their ministry that Christ has given to the whole body. So in Ephesians 4, we see in verse 11, And He, Christ who ascended, and He gave the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and it says, and the shepherds are pastors, teachers. Look at that. To equip the saints for the work of ministry. What are the pastor's role? To equip, to lead, to shepherd, to equip the church. And the church is going to do the work of ministry. For building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. To mature manhood to the measure of the statue of fullness of Christ. Look at that. Why pastors are given to the church to help the church to grow in understanding and maturity and so the church can just do what Christ has called the church to do, to ministry. Jesus Christ gives these people, this office, this men, these pastors or elders just to empower the church. And that's so contrary, as you read what Paul is saying here, that's so contrary to what we see in so many churches today. The model today is a few professionals serving a group of consumers. That's how people see church. You're coming just to consume, and then you have a few professionals just entertaining Clinton Arnold, he says in his commentary in Ephesians, I think it's beautiful, he says, he says, in fact, the responsibility of the gifted leaders is to equip the various members of the body of Christ to minister to one another. The mark of a healthy church is one in which every member is aware of the grace of God upon their lives and is actively ministering. What is the mark of a healthy church? Is each member, Carson, Ruth, Jose, understanding the grace of God in their lives, equipping them to do the work in the church? Although Paul does not use the word priest in this passage to characterize every believer, the concept is abundantly present. This passage contributes significantly to the concept of the priesthood of all believers. And then he says, This is a particularly important doctrine to affirm and teach when there is an increasing trend toward a consumer mentality by churchgoers. The body of Christ is not a place to sit and soak, but to serve. It's important to help believers realize that they have all been called into full-time Christian ministry. Giftings may be different, roles may vary, but being a Christian means being a what? A minister. So you see how the pastoral leadership and the authority of the congregation work together. Similarly, you see in Hebrews 13. In Hebrews 13, we see how the author of Hebrews cuts both ways: responsibilities to leaders, responsibility to the congregation. <clears throat> obey your leaders and submit to them, he says in verse 17, for they are keeping watch over your souls. What is the duty of the leaders, the pastors, the elders? Keep watch. Keep watch over the souls of the members of the congregation. As those who will have to give an account. And then they're the responsibility of the congregation. Let them do this with joy, not with groaning. Look at that. For that would be of no advantage to you. It works together. Congregation and the pastors. The pastors or the elders I was thinking, there is this similarity where you think about a household and the last thing I want is for my kids to be always depending on me. I want them to grow. I want them to make decisions that are going to glorify the Lord. I pray for their salvation and I ask that the Lord would help my wife, my kids to grow, to grow, to be mature in the Lord, loving Christ, loving His Word, loving His holiness. And that's the same that happens in the church. The goal of the leadership is not to have people dependent on you, but people dependent on Christ. They love Christ. That's why Paul says that the goal of the leadership is that the whole church may reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Charles Spurgeon, well-known preacher, Reformed Baptist, he said, He puts the two together also. He says, Spurgeon, Gregory Wills writing about Spurgeon, he says, Spurgeon insisted finally that Christ required congregational church government. So Spurgeon was firmly in the congregational aspect of each local church. The members of the church jointly exercised church power. Christ delegated final authority to the congregation. He says, Spurgeon taught that the New Testament specified the basic organization of each congregation. And then he goes on to say, according to scriptures, Spurgeon says, each church should have a pastor. I would say, or, or pastors and pastors, who was or were the overseers, the bishop of the congregation. You see, all the same words for the same office, different words for the same office. He says, the Spurgeon thought of the pastors as captain of a vessel and led the church by counsel. That's how we lead the church by counsel, instruction in the scriptures, godly example. He also ruled the church in its meetings, discipline, institution, by exerting his influence and initiating action. It's a fascinating thing to study how Spurgeon's church worked. It's a beautiful, beautiful study to get books on how the Metropolitan Tabernacle under Spurgeon's leadership, pastoral ministry, worked. So my goal here is to expand what it means to be a pastor or elder-led congregationalism. And we're going to first attack what it means to be congregational church. What is congregationalism? So let's move to the first part. What it means to be a congregational church. So we can summarize here that in a congregational system of government, the gathered assembly is only the final court of appeal in matters of discipline, doctrine, Personal dispute and church membership. That's very important. What is the authority that the church as the members have? That is related to matters of discipline in the church, doctrine, personal dispute, and church membership. And I would put doctrine related to leadership, leadership of the church also. So the church has the final authority. It's not the pope, it's not the bishop. It's not a synod of other churches, it's the local church itself. So you would say that it's the responsibility of the whole congregation, all the members, not just the elders or, or bishops, to confess. The whole church together has the authority to confess and uphold sound doctrine, to add to their number those who credibly profess Christ, and to remove from their number those who profess Christ, but whose lifestyle fundamentally contradict that profession of faith in Jesus. That's what congregationalism implies. The whole church, the whole body is called to have this final authority in matters of church discipline, leadership, doctrine in the church. And what I want to show you is that this understanding, because sometimes we think that, oh, church, church government is just one idea that you have. It could, but I would argue that there is a, a biblical theology that helps us to see how the whole Bible is taking us as, as God's covenants are being developed and progressively uh, fulfilled. I think that there is a clear biblical pattern where the church, the new covenant community, is different from Israel under the old covenant. So you would say that our view, like the wellam say, that our view of church government, and especially the defense of congregationalism, is not an isolated piece of ecclesiology. It's not just this little thing of ecclesiology that you just add. No, it's part of a larger discussion that wrestles with the continuity, discontinuity, regarding the biblical covenants. All the covenants, how they work together. So you would say that the church is in Christ Jesus. Therefore, the church is a new humanity. It's a new Adam. And we need to think now, okay, what was Adam created and called to do? What was Adam created and called to do? He was to be a king and a priest. He had a royal priesthood. He was supposed to govern. He was supposed to rule under God's government. And he was supposed to be a priest, he was supposed to teach others the law of the Lord. He was supposed to keep the garden clean like priests. And the church is in Christ. He is the fulfillment. This new humanity in Christ is characterized by new kinds of relationships which inevitably require a new kind of governance. Remember the promise in Jeremiah 31, as he's talking about the New Covenant. And he's saying how all the members of the New Covenant will know the Lord. All the members of the Covenant will know that we will have a covenantal relationship with God. From the least to the greatest. Implying that that mediation that there was under the Old Covenant where he had the priests trying to teach the people and try to exhort, he's saying that's going to be abolished. You think about the priests under the old covenant. The priests had the duty of protecting the temple of impurity and pollution. So as you're tracing the Bible storyline, you see Adam acting as a priest. And then you have Israel. And in Israel, you have the Levites who are the priests. And their duty is to keep the tabernacle, the temple, the land clean. They're supposed to teach the law of the Lord. And now the church that is in Christ Jesus possesses this duty and authority to keep the temple, that is the church, clean. All the members, not just pastors. All the members have this duty. We have been... Sadly, indoctrinated by this idea that as if we go back to the Old Testament, there is this priestly caste in the church where you have the professionals, where they are the ones who can do the ministry. When the New Testament tells us that under the New Covenant, the whole church, because the church is in Christ, the church now receives since Jesus Christ, He is the greater Adam. The church now receives the mandate that was once upon Adam to be a royal priesthood. That's all you read earlier in Revelation 1. That we are a kingdom of priests. We are a royal priesthood. That's all you were singing earlier. Christ, the true and better Moses. Christ, and true and better Levite. So, Lehman, he writes, he says, Just as the church receives Christ's righteousness, so the church receives Christ's perfect Adamic sonship. Every Christian is declared and named a son of God and the new humanity. This is our identity by virtue of the new covenant and the new birth. And just as the church puts on Christ's righteousness, so the church puts on Adam's political and priestly vocation. This is our authority and work, again, by virtue of the new covenant and the new birth. So the concept that the whole church has authority in major gospel matters, it's a result of the covenantal progression that we see in the Scriptures. All the members know the Lord. All the members have the Holy Spirit. Yes, we may vary in maturity, But we all know the Lord. We all know the gospel. All the members should know the gospel. That's why Paul says, I'm amazed how quickly you're deserting him. So there is something beautiful about the new covenant and the congregational type of government. Biblical congregationalism reveals the glories of the new covenant. It shows that the church is a royal priesthood, not just pastors. The whole church, from the least to the greatest, deeply involved in the life of the church because they know the Lord. It's it's heartbreaking to see. So many churches removing this glorious privilege and responsibility of church members to grow to grow in exercising the authority that Christ has given them. so let me further explain here what and we're going to look at what Congregationalism does not mean what congregation, Congregationalism does not mean there's so much confusion about Congregationalism. We, we hear so many stories about churches where they think that they say about congregational churches where they need to vote for everything, from the brand of toilet paper to the paper that they're buying for the printer. That's not congregational. That's not biblical congregationalism. I'm sorry. Or others say that, oh, in congregational churches, the pastors, the elders have no authority. That's not biblical congregationalism. So I would start first saying that Congregationalism is not American democracy. That's very important. There is certainly an aspect of democracy. There is a democratic element in the church. But we need to understand what democratic element is. Democracy comes from the word demos, people. And then you have the word for power or authority. The authority of the people. And the church, the gathered people of God, has indeed authority in the Christ-given areas of authority. But we need to remember that the power and authority in the church do not rest in the congregation, like in the American democracy, but it rests on the Word of God. That's very important. The authority that we have basically rests where? The Scripture that governs us. You see, the the church is not about equal representation of each one's preference and agenda. There is no endowment by the Lord Jesus with the unalienable right to pursue your own happiness. That's not the church. We are slaves of Christ, pursuing the will and glory of the Lord Jesus, and we seek one another's happiness over our own happiness. It becomes very messed up when you start bringing the idea of American democracy to the church. Therefore, the business meeting, the church, they are not a free-for-all where everybody feels entitled to give their two cents and push his own agenda. We are seeking the Lord's agenda for His church. Amen? 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 So when church business meeting becomes a debate about painting the church's restroom when people are arguing about the type of refrigerator that the church purchases, complains about one's personal preference, then this type of congregationalism has completely departed from the biblical standard. Jonas Lehman, he he says, we've got to be very careful with the language of democracy. He says, it can provoke a righteous or entitlement-driven mentality. In short, the language of democracy introduces elements into the church that are foreign to the biblical worldview. Democratic citizens choose the leaders who most represent their preferences and then send them into the office with a mandate. And he says, if one legislator doesn't heed the mandate, the electorate throws him out. In a congregational church, however, an elder's only mandate is to serve Scripture's mandate. Not the members. Contrary to secular theories of democracy, an elder's authority comes from God. And his work is to bind conscience with God's word. Amen? So, very important to keep in mind. Congregational church is not American democracy. And some people start thinking that, oh, we're just like an American democracy. I, I need to express my own ideas and feelings and no, no, no. There are areas where we are going to exercise our authority that Christ has prescribed. Also, you can say that congregationalism does not make pastors or elders. And you can say that seminaries or any other place make a pastor. Who makes the pastor? Christ Jesus. He gives us a gift to the church. When the church is called to express her mind whether a man should be a leader through vote, the church is corporately recognizing the prior activity of Christ in furnishing the man for the office. And that's important because sometimes people think that the congregation made the pastor, therefore the pastor belongs to them. And suddenly they want to treat the pastor as their puppy. you got to do what we want you to do. Sorry, that's not how that works. That's not how that works. Of course, if the leaders, the pastors, elders are not walking according to the standards of the Bible, the church has the biblical authority to remove that man out of office. But not because of personal preferences or your own agendas and desires. Amen? Uh, In Acts 20, 28, Paul says, pay careful attention. He's talking to the elders. "Pay, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which Not the church has made you overseer, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseer. One more. What Congregationalism does not mean. Congregationalism does not mean that the congregation is always right. Vox Populi, that's Latin for the voice of the people. Vox Populi is not vox Dei, the voice of God. Okay, So we need to be careful. We need to recognize that the Bible is infallible. Congregations, we still have sins, r- remaining sins in us. So we just need to remember that we can be wrong. I think that congregationalism is the most biblical, most faithful type of government to the New Testament. But, like with any other sort of leadership, we can mess up. Amen? Amen. So, I think the, the greatest example of a church, the, a congregation that had a, a wrong voting was with Jonathan Edwards. When he was fired after 20 years of faithful ministry, he was fired by the congregation. They did not like his stance on some areas of the church, especially Communion. So, sometimes the congregation can be wrong. We need to keep that in mind. The weaker, theologically, a church is, the weaker its congregational nature will be. That's why it's important for members of the church to be always growing. And that's what a healthy congregationalism encourages, is the growth of the members. So, let's move now just to... Expand a little bit what congregationalism means. So we saw that congregationalism does not mean that the church has final authority on every single issue in the church. Christ Jesus has given shepherds, elders to teach, shepherds, supervise, and instruct the whole church to do the work of the ministry. The pastors will lead the church and the church will have final authority in matters related to the what and who of the gospel. What do we mean by the what and the who? So here we go. The who? Who should be called a member? The congregation has the authority to say who should be a member of this church or not. Who should not be called a brother or a sister? Who should be baptized and who should partake of the Lord's Supper or who should not? The church has the authority to decide who should be leading and who should stop leading the church. Who should be teaching and who should not be teaching? That's very important. Or the what? The what of the gospel. So the church has the authority to decide if the gospel is not being proclaimed. What the gospel is. That's what we saw in Galatians. If a pastor or a member is teaching a different gospel, then the church has the authority to correct, discipline, and even remove, if necessary, that leader or member. We have the authority to establish what we believe as a church, as foundational doctrines. That's why we come up with a statement of faith, a confession of faith. Or we have the authority to decide what type of associations we have with other churches. So, brothers and sisters, nowhere in the Bible we find congregational aspect or the congregation voting for trivial, superficial, and daily issues like the color of the carpet, the type of refrigerator. That's not. God has given leaders, He has given elders, pastors to supervise the church in these areas. The church has the final authority. Remember that. In areas related to personal dispute among members, when it's serious, it's getting to threaten the unity of the church. In doctrinal matters, in discipline matters, and in membership matters. So I just want right now to briefly show two areas where we have the biblical testimony. And the first one is the authority that we all as a church, you all, together with me, I'm a member of this church, we as a church have authority on matters of personal dispute among members. And the m- clearest text is Matthew 18. If a brother sins against you, go to him. If he doesn't listen to you, you bring another. And you try, and you're trying. There is a dispute, there is a problem between these members. Until there is no more resolution. And the person who sinned doesn't want to repent. Then the whole church is brought to you. Be involved. And the whole church has the authority now to say... Sadly, because of your lifestyle, we need to treat you as an unbeliever. Jesus does not say, "Tell it to the elders." Jesus does not, does not say, "Tell it to the bishop." He doesn't say, "Tell it to the deacons." He doesn't say, "Tell it to the synod." He says, Tell, "He tells what?" To the church. Tell the church. The church has this authority. In Acts chapter 6, there is a problem in the church in Jerusalem between the widows, and then you have the congregation and the leadership working together to solve the issue. We have this major issue where it's threatening the unity of the church, where some widows are complaining that somebody seems to be more receiving more favor. And then the leadership with the congregation, they work together to solve this problem that was threatening their unity. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, in the dispute between brothers, Paul calls the whole church to deal with their own problems. Paul says, do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? This matter should be solved among you in the church. One other beautiful text is in Philippians chapter 4. In Philippians chapter 4, we have this conflict between two very faithful members of the church, Iodia and Sintihe, or Sintiq. And you see that Paul says in in Philippians 4, I entreat Iodia and I entreat Sintihe to agree in the Lord. And then he says, yes, I ask. You also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. It's so serious that Paul is willing to bring their names to the public. The issue is so serious, threatening the unity of the church, that he's not embarrassed to bring their names on a church meeting. And then he says... Look at he says, true companion, I ask you also, true companion, help these women. And there is questions: who, who, are the, who, who is this true companion? And many commentators and scholars, they believe that Paul is using the language of true companion, referring to the whole body, the whole church. Because this whole church as one body has been in partnership with Paul in the gospel. So Gerald H- Hawthorne, he says, The simplest and perhaps the best answer is to say that Paul sees the entire Philippian church as a unit, as a single individual, a body, who shares with him the burden of his apostolic work. And he so addresses them. He sees the Philippian church yoked together with him as two oxen teamed up to accomplish an important task. The whole church needs to be involved here, we have two important members in the church. And instead of the church be taking sides, we need to come alongside and help them. Look okay, at Paul says. He used the, the verb to help there. Help these women. Su lambano. Su, together, lambano to throw. You guys, the whole church, needs to throw your arms around these women and help them to get along together. The whole church. In Romans 15... Romans 15 14, we, we see something similar. Look how Paul says to the whole church. He says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge. That's just Jeremiah 31, the promise of the new covenant. And Paul is applying out to the church in Rome. Filled with all knowledge and able to do what? Instruct one another. The word here, nuthetel, that's where we have nuthetic counseling, where people say biblical counseling, is the word for counsel, admonish, instruct. And Paul sees the whole church in Rome as ready to counsel and instruct one another. The whole church has the authority to come alongside and help one another. You don't need to send this issue to the professionals. You guys can deal with that. You have the Holy Spirit in you. Similarly, Paul addresses the whole church of Corinth in relation to the chaos during the worship service. The pastors are called to supervise, lead, but the congregation has the duty to follow the biblical patterns of order in the church. So there is a Christ-given authority to the whole church, not an outside body, to deal with serious, unity-threatening issues in the church. Amen? The church has a duty to come alongside. When we have issues, that are threatening the unity of the church to come alongside and help these people. Second, in matters of doctrine. We, the church has authority. You members, the members of this church, you have authority in matters of doctrine. So, it's amazing to see how the letters of the New Testament... The majority of the letters written by Paul, they are not addressed to pastors. They are addressed to whom? Who is addressed? The whole church. The whole church. So, for example, Romans 1, 7. To the pastors in Rome, is that what Paul says? To the elders in Rome? To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be what? Saints. 1 Corinthians 1, 2, to the church of God that is in Corinth. Galatians 1, 2, to the churches of Galatia. Ephesians 1, 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus. And I love Philippians 1, 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. And look at that, to all the saints, to the whole church in Philippi, with, with what? The bishops, the elders, the pastors. And the deacons. The whole church. And all these letters deal with important doctrinal and practical matters that must be applied by the whole church. So, turn with me to Galatians 1. We saw that text. Galatians 1. Paul says... I'm astonished that you, and the you here is you all, the whole church. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. And he says, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. Who who, Who is Paul talking to? Who is Paul talking to? The whole church. The whole congregation. Paul is not calling the elders, the pastors. He's actually calling the whole church. And Paul is astonished that the whole church is endorsing and accepting false teachings. Every church member should be able to distinguish between the true and the false gospel. That's why you members of this church, you have a responsibility when we have new members aspiring, or we have people aspiring membership, you should be checking, talking about the gospel. Do they know the gospel? Are they saved? And usually we give a good amount of time for you to check it out. Sometimes it's frustrating when I send the notes that, hey, this these brothers and sisters here, aspiring membership, we are going to be voting soon. And then people say, oh, I have never talked to them. You have a duty to go and talk to them. Get to know them. Ask questions. In 2 Timothy 4.3, Paul says that the time is coming when people, in referring to Christian churches, will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. It's the church's responsibility to reject this type of people. Say, no, we don't want them leading us. The churches in Revelation 2 and 3, they're either praised or rebuked by Jesus for either embracing or rejecting false false teachers. The church has responsibility. Another example, in Acts, in Acts 15, major, major doctrinal issue. The first Major issue in the life of the church. And we read verses 4 and 22 of Acts 15. When Paul and Barnabas came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by who? By the church and the apostles and the elders. Look at that. The church deeply involved in this massive doctrinal issue. And they declared all that God had done with them. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with what? The whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. The whole church involved in this doctrinal matter. And we can see, therefore, that the church, since the church has authority over doctrine, will have authority over who is teaching those doctrines in the life of the church. Imagine being part of a church where you have no voice, you have no opinion as to who is going to be teaching. Suddenly the leadership decides that a woman is going to be a pastor. And you have no voice. But you see how it is. Every Christian is going to be congregationalist somehow. By their feet. The feet... We either stay or leave. We're going to make a vote somehow. But it's sad when the church is not encouraging the congregation, the leaders are not encouraging the church, the congregation, to grow in their understanding and exercise the authority that Christ has given them. And brothers and sisters, this authority over doctrinal matters is deeply related to the church's priesthood in Christ Jesus. We are a kingdom of priests under the old covenant. The priests we were able to discern between clean and unclean. Look at Leviticus 10. The Lord said to Aaron, Leviticus 10, you, the priests, high priest, you are to distinguish between the holy and the common, between the unclean and the clean, and you are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. Christ Jesus fulfills the priestly office. The church in Christ Jesus now is a kingdom of priests. The whole church, because of the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, we no longer need the two stones to help us. We have the Spirit of God to help us with wisdom. We have the full revelation of Christ. Every member has the duty to study the Word of God, know the gospel, love sound doctrine, In a way that they will protect the church from false teachings and false teachers. So this type of church government, congregationalism, we're going to continue next Lord's Day, but just to wrap up here. This type of church government, congregationalism, forces, encourages, and nourishes spiritual maturity among the members. We are representing Christ, not our own will, not our own desire. And we need to know the will of Christ. Therefore, we need to know the Scriptures. We long, we desire that our church here will glorify the Lord Jesus by having faithful, biblically qualified pastors or elders who will lead, shepherd, govern, and equip the whole church with the gospel, in such a way that the whole church will show herself to be a kingdom of priests. That's the longing of our hearts. That people come to this church and see literally a kingdom of priests. That can only be done because of the grace of Christ in our lives. Amen? So let us pray. Ask the Lord's help so we can apply these things into our church's life. Oh Lord we we come before you and we are dealing with very important matters here the type of government that you want for your church the responsibilities that you have given in your people we want when we see you face to face to hear those words Of praise and faithfulness. They will call us good and faithful slaves. Lord, help us as a church to grow in the understanding of the responsibilities, the duties, the authority that you have given us as a church. Forgive us for the many years spending. Not exercising this glorious ministry that we have. Help us as a church to be indeed your chosen people, a royal priesthood. Deliver us from carnality. Deliver us from selfishness. So we need you, Lord. Protect this church for the glory of your name. Amen. Amen.